Well, good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. One of the things that I love about singing old hymns is that it reminds me that we are people who belong to a history of Christians of the past who have also believed in the faithfulness of God. And so here we are, 21st century, and we still believe in the faithfulness of God. Acts chapter 13. Before we get there, before we read the passage, let me get right into it this morning and let me ask you, are you discouraged? Are you discouraged? At the center of our meditations for this morning and next Sunday as well is the word encouragement. The word appears in verse 15, where the ruler of a synagogue invites Paul and Barnabas to share a word, specifically a word of encouragement, to which Paul gladly agrees. This being the case then, we must pay careful attention to what is in front of us this morning. And this for the following reason. We are going to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul for a public counseling session. Today and next Sunday, this great man, the Apostle Paul, will enter this room, as it were, as a man who was constantly engaged in the battle for souls, constantly moving into the darkness to bring the light, constantly suffering for the sake of truth, And that man will bring us some encouragement. Paul himself, as you know, was a man abused, persecuted, beaten, stoned nearly to death, as we will see in the next chapter. And yet here he comes, able to give us all encouragement. In fact, the word encouragement in the Greek language is the word paraklesis, which comes from the word parakaleo. And it means to come alongside in order to exhort, comfort, and offer consolation, to strengthen through instruction. Not surprisingly, when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, he referred to him as the parakletos, meaning the helper, the comforter, the one who was sent to be with us to the end, the one who comforts us through his word. Acts 13, then, reveals Paul's understanding of what Christian encouragement actually is and what it looks like. If anything is true of this life and life in this fallen world is that temptations and occasions for discouragement abound. We can be discouraged by internal doubts or external circumstances. We can be discouraged when we look at the broken relationships We can be discouraged by the never-ending cycle of work. We can be discouraged by the ongoing and deepening corruption of politics and society. We can be discouraged by a person who has disappointed us. We can be discouraged by a medical diagnosis. Look at Paul himself. He could have been discouraged by a myriad of things, many of which we have already mentioned. And yet he is about to stand and come alongside us to give us all a word of encouragement. So as we make our way to that word, let me place our passage in its proper context by looking at verses 13 and 14, the first half of verse 14. 
Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. We're following Paul's first missionary journey. Last time we saw him and Barnabas in the island of Cyprus confronting Elymas, the magician, in a town called Paphos where a, an authority came to faith in the Lord Jesus. And we gleaned several important lessons regarding missions. We concluded that missions is the mission of God. It involves opposition. It does not exclude judgment. And it always results in the victory of God. Through the proclamation of the gospel, God advances his purposes in the world. Some people are saved from darkness while others are kept in it, even if only temporarily. The point being this, God never loses. God never loses. He accomplishes salvation even as judgment goes forth. Having gone through this very intense experience in Paphos, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark continue their missionary journey. This time, the Bible says they head northwest to what we now know as southern Turkey. This meant that they had to sail yet again, but this time something interesting happened. It says that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. And you might remember that Paul and Barnabas had recruited John Mark from Jerusalem when they took the monetary gift to assist the Christians in Jerusalem because of the famine. Evidently, as soon as they arrived in Perga, in the region of Pamphylia, meaning southern Turkey, John Mark, for some reason, decided to leave them. Now, why exactly? We are not given the details. However, later on in Acts chapter 15, Barnabas and Paul will have a serious disagreement having to do precisely with John Mark, which leads us to believe that Paul did not appreciate John Mark leaving them at this point. Apparently, Paul did not look favorably on John Mark after he departed uh, in, in, after this event. In any case, Paul and Barnabas, the Bible says, went on with their journey without John Mark. He went back to Jerusalem. They did not stay very long in Perga and quickly continued going north to another region known as Pisidia, where there was another town also known as Antioch, which is not the same Antioch from which they left originally. These are two different Antiochs. And in this Antioch in Pisidia, there was a significant Jewish population. Therefore, synagogues, which were Jewish places of worship, were a commonplace. This then takes us to verses 14b and 15, where we see the main event of this account. What is happening in this account? Here's the main event. Paul preaches at a Jewish synagogue. The second half of verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, without John Mark, went into the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said. Why were Paul and Barnabas selected to give a word of encouragement in the synagogue? Evidently, it seems that visiting Jewish people, especially men like Paul, who was very probably a well-known Jewish rabbi, were given opportunities to address the people in the synagogue. And so Paul, as a former Pharisee, 
would have been a perfect candidate for giving instruction and encouragement. And so he did. Standing up, he called attention to himself by a hand gesture, and he began to speak, which brings us to the word of encouragement. But before I offer you what I believe to be the summary of the word of encouragement in this section, let me explain why this is so massively important. Discouragement, discouragement in life often comes from the unpredictable nature of changeable realities. Discouragement in life often comes from the unpredictable nature of changeable realities. Ultimately then, encouragement can only come from those realities that are not subject to change. Realities that are not subject to change. And so even though what Paul is about to say, beginning in the second half of verse 16, may sound like a history lesson with many movable parts behind that somewhat complex history stands the greatest unchangeable reality of all and the only trustworthy source of encouragement. And what is that one unchangeable reality? Here's the summary of Paul's timely word of encouragement. Are you ready? Three words. God is good. God is good. Good. It doesn't matter what changes in the world. That never changes. God is good. This can only mean one thing. Discouragement is the fruit of forgetting who God is. Discouragement is the fruit of forgetting who God truly is. Therefore, in his word of encouragement, Paul will do one thing preeminently, and that is to bring our focus back to the goodness of God, as we were saying, as Kevin was telling us, away from ourselves and to God. A greater remedy for discouragement does not exist. A greater remedy for discouragement does not exist. Paul knew this very well. He knew this very well for many times. The Apostle Paul, the only thing that he had was the certainty that God is good. At times, Paul was stripped of everything else in his life, but never of the conviction that God is good. So this is where we begin, this is where we stay, and this is where we'll end. God is good. And Paul's approach, under the ever-present guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will be to display the goodness of God by a series of demonstrations, all of which were manifested throughout the history of Israel, especially as recorded in the Old Testament. I will do my best to put these in front of your, the eyes of your faith so that you too might be encouraged this morning. And the first piece of encouragement is this. God is good as seen or as demonstrated in his electing love. In his electing love. Consider with me the second half of verse 16 and verse 17. Here's where Paul begins his word of encouragement. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. How interesting that while some people seem to think of the doctrine of divine election as a doctrine to be shunned 
and avoided and rejected, the Apostle Paul begins his word of encouragement by going right to it. Men of Israel, you are here today because God chose our fathers. Rejoice. You are not here because of you. You are here because of God. Because of his choice, God's electing love is a source of great encouragement for this reason. Once God sets his love on someone, he never lets go. He never lets go. If there's anything the Old Testament history teaches us, is that when God sets his love on somebody, he never lets go. I mean, consider Israel's history for crying out loud. If there ever was anyone with plenty of reasons to say, you know, enough is enough, it was God. How many times did they complain to Moses during the Exodus? We had meat in Egypt, right? And after the Exodus, how many times did they question the goodness of God over and over again? And what did they do as soon as they thought Moses was gone in the mountain? They asked Aaron to build him a golden calf so they could worship it. But God chose Abraham. God chose the fathers, meaning uh, because of his electing love for them, you men of Israel are still here because God chose. Consider his goodness as seen in his electing love. He chose Abraham out of the land of Ur and never ever forgot about him but kept him as the object of his love. And don't miss the fact that this electing love, meaning it is a divine election of Abraham for the purpose of blessing him and his descendants. God made the people great in Egypt. It was his love for them. And also please remember the dark background to the whole story. Remember that there were, there were two dark things that happened for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to end up in Egypt. First, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. By the way, that's the kind of people God chose. Not very nice people. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then the second thing, there was a famine in all the world, which forced Jacob's family into Egypt seeking food. And both of these things, the selling of Joseph and the famine, were meant for good. Just think about that. A man sold into slavery and a worldwide famine, they were meant for good. Those two events led the way for Abraham's descendants to become prosperous in Egypt. And they certainly did. What an example these things are of the fact that within the context of God's electing love, all things, all things do work together for good. What can possibly, what can possibly redeem a man being sold into slavery? God's electing love. What can possibly redeem a worldwide famine? God's electing love. This is our encouragement, brothers and sisters. This is our encouragement that God's electing love has not ceased to function in the world for his people. And that his electing love still overrides the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this applies to both your personal experiences 
as in the case of Joseph, and also to worldwide events, as it was the case with the famine. In every instance, individual and global, God's electing love had a purpose. Let me ask you this. Let me make it personal. What circumstances, either personal or global or somewhere in between, have you discouraged this morning? I suppose I could spend quite some time speculating as to all types of things that could have you feeling discouraged this morning, but I won't do that. Rather, I will ask you one question. Have you by any chance forgotten that all things work together for the good of those who love God? Have you forgotten about God's electing love Have you forgotten that God is just as active, involved, and interested in your well-being as he was back then with Joseph and Abraham's descendants? He has not changed. Or better yet, let me encourage you this morning, speak to yourself and say with the psalmist, my soul is cast down within me. And then say to God, therefore I remember you. And then ask yourself, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then answer your own question with these three words, hope in God, Psalm 42, 11. In other words, talk faith to yourself. Talk faith to yourself. We are a people of faith. It took the selling of Joseph into slavery in a worldwide famine for Israel to begin to understand that God's electing love is always standing in the back behind the good, the bad, and even the ugly. Do you see God's goodness to you in the fact that he chose you for himself to set his love upon you forever in Christ applied by the Holy Spirit? Sometimes, my friends, it takes personal sorrow however intense, as well as chaotic times, however long, for the people of God to begin to see that all things do indeed work together for our good. In other words, in other words, in order for you and I to begin to see the goodness of God in a more experiential way, we must go through what? All things. And guess what that includes? Suffering and sorrow. But the reward is that the electing love of God becomes personal. And this is the thing, brothers and sisters. We are not deists who believe in a God somewhere out there indifferent to our present needs. Not at all. God elects us, but he does so in love. In love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.4. So consider... Give thought to, ponder upon the intensely personal involvement of God in your life. From all eternity, he has loved you. Thus you were born. Thus you are here. And thus you are going through what you are going through. For the Christians, it is never because of bad luck. For the Christian, it is always because of God's electing love. Be encouraged. God is good. All of this leads us into our next truth. God is good as demonstrated in his sovereign power. Second half of verse 17. 
And with uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. The reference to the uplifted arm is an anthropomorphism. Say that 10 times. I won't. Meaning, it is the Bible ascribing human physicality to God who is spirit. Strong men normally exercise their strength through the use of their arms. The arm is then a picture of power, not meant to be taken literally. Of course, we have now moved away from Joseph and his brothers and have entered the realm of Moses and the Exodus, specifically the plagues with which God judged Egypt and freed his people. Those plagues were the power of God in full display, the plagues that eventually forced Pharaoh to let the people go were God's uplifted arm. The power was invisible, but the effects were seen by all. Please take this mental note. The greatness of the Exodus is that God delivered Israel when Israel was at its weakest. There were many in terms of numbers, but they were the weakest in terms of strength. This was especially true when you looked at Israel against the backdrop of mighty Egypt, the greatest power in the world by then. When they were weak, God delivered them. Throughout the entire ordeal, Israel knew itself to be helpless and literally at the mercy of God, fully dependent on his power and his power alone. And power is precisely what they saw during their captivity. Egypt had a strong grip on them, a grip they could not break. They were in the domain of Egypt, but God. He humiliated Egypt and broke its strength, and Israel was free. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, we were in the grip of death. We were in the grip of sin. Paul says, in fact, that we were in the domain of darkness. We were also in captivity, born into sin, cursed under the law, and unable to break free. We were slaves, but God. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2.4. God, says Paul, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 1.13 and 14. While in Egypt, put, God put his wisdom and power on display through the plagues. In Palestine, God put his wisdom and power on display through the cross. The Father, listen to this, the Father unleashed the plague of judgment upon his own Son so that you and I could receive freedom. Freedom. Through the apparent weakness of Jesus dying, God unleashed his very power to deliver us from our captivity. And just like darkness was a judgment on the darkness of Egypt, the death of Jesus was a judgment on death itself. And death died. On the cross, death died. God judged death through the death of his son because God is good. But that's not all. Paul continues his sermon 
and his word of encouragement by proving God's goodness as demonstrated next in his divine or perfect patience. His perfect patience. Verse 18 through 21. And this patience, by the way, is shown in three different parts. First, it was demonstrated in the wilderness. Verse 18. And for about 40 years, and I love how he puts it here. And for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land. I believe the best summary of this is given by Moses himself in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7, where we are given a description of Israel with these words. This is Moses speaking about Israel. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Patience is the leading quality of love. Patience. Love is what? Patience. So what is God? He's patient. He's patient. And you know what patience means? Large capacity to endure. Large capacity to endure. How large is your capacity to endure the annoying people around you? Why then, you may ask, did the Lord continue to bless Israel by driving other nations away? Moses answers that as well. To Israel, Moses said in Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. In other words, Israel, you do not deserve the land. But God is patient. Not only that, but second, his divine patience, perfect patience, was extended over 450 years. That's a long time. 450 years. Verse 20. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. The 450 years include 400 years in Egypt, 40 years of wilderness wandering, and 10 years to conquer the land. But God's patience continued. God even gave them judges to deliver them from the oppression of other nations, and then he even gave them Samuel, the prophet, all of which were extensions of his divine patience with an undeserving people. And as if that were not enough, third, God's patience, perfect patience, was sustained through bad choices. Bad choices. Verse 21, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And why did they ask for a king? Because they wanted to be like the other nations. But the purpose of their calling was precisely to be unlike the other nations. So they wanted a king to blend with the world rather than have God as king to be distinct from the world. But God, even then, was patient. If there ever was an example of patience, it is God. But please allow me to make it personal. Please allow me to make it personal. My Christian brother and sister, have you considered the patience of God with you? Not the person next to you, but with you. Some of you are looking at your husbands immediately. Listen. 
But what about you? It is relatively easy to look at Israel, point the finger, and say, look at those losers. But what about us? Tell me, how has God dealt with your own inconsistencies, your own sins, your own doubts, your own complaining, your own grumblings, your own bitterness, your own stubbornness? I can tell you how. This is what God did. He sent his son to die for you. That's what he did. Is not this the very reason Paul mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.16? But I received mercy for this reason, says Paul, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display what? His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This morning, it is possible some of you are troubled by a guilty conscience. What is Paul's word of encouragement to you? Remember God's perfect patience. Confess your sins and also rejoice. Rejoice in the truth, the blessed truth that God delights in the manifestation of his perfect patience toward you, sinner. And so you are a daughter who continues to struggle with anger against mom and dad. Guess what? God is perfectly patient. You are a son who deals with rebellious inclinations. Guess what? God is perfectly patient. You are a husband who is always complaining about your lot in life. Guess what? God is perfectly patient. You have allowed yourself to live in a state of perpetual bitterness or disappointment. But God has been patient with, patient with you. Why? Because love is patient. I know of no better example of this than Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. Please turn with me to Luke 15. This is in page 874 in the Blue Bibles, if that is what you're using. Luke 15. What we are about to read is a summary of the story of Israel and of us and God's perfect patience. Let's read beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. We don't see the shock. But to the Jewish audience, this would have been truly, truly shocking. Here's a paraphrase of his words. Dad, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. So let's just pretend you are actually dead and give me my inheritance. I'd rather have fun than to have you. We know the rest of the story, which is summed up in verse 13. He squandered his property in reckless living. That's the story of Israel saying, we would rather go back to Egypt for some meat. God, you are dead to us. But that's the story of us. When we dive into the mud of sin and we say, I'd rather enjoy this temporal pressure, pleasure and pretend that you are dead to me. But then the father does the unthinkable. He does the unthinkable. 
The son comes to his senses, meaning he repents and heads back home. By this point, he doesn't expect much. He will be content with being a hired servant, but in verse 20, this happened, the unthinkable happens. But while he was still a long way off coming back home, his father saw him and felt compassion. What? What to the Jewish audience? This is offensive. He doesn't deserve anything. But he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So let me encourage you, my brother and sister. Because you may be asking yourself, well, what does any of this have to do with me? Well, I want you to consider this. In Christ, in Christ, God embraced humanity. He embraced a dirty Sinful, filthy humanity. In Christ, he became a man. He embraced humanity. But by the Holy Spirit, Christ embraces you. By the Holy Spirit, Christ embraces you. Yes, he found you in the mud of your sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, And there he embraced you. In his son, God forgave all your sins. And then he placed upon you his son's own robe of righteousness and on your finger his royal ring. As the father did with the son in verse 22. Why? Oh, because God is good. Because God is good. So rejoice in his perfect patience. And so we come to the end of Paul's word of encouragement by considering God's goodness as demonstrated in his unending faithfulness. His unending faithfulness. And God's unending faithfulness is seen in primarily two ways. First, it was historically secured in David. Verse 22, And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. God made, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he promised that kings would come from him. Genesis 17, 6. Isaac was born, then Jacob, and to Jacob 12 sons were born, one of whom was named Judah. And to Judah the promise was made that the scepter shall not depart from you, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice that even back in Genesis, the promise encompassed the whole world, or the peoples. And this was historically, though only partially, fulfilled in David's kingdom. David, even with all his severe failings and sins, he did love the Lord. And so he stood as an imperfect prototype of the true king who was yet to come. He did serve the Lord in his time, but then he died. More on this next week. So we are naturally led to finish our considerations where we absolutely should. Because if the unending faithfulness of God was historically secured in David, it was later on perfectly displayed in Jesus. Perfectly displayed in Jesus. In Jesus. Verse 23 through 25. Of this man's offspring, meaning David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before his coming, John had proclaimed, John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so David was a king who, when compared to others, was indeed exemplary. He trusted the Lord, he loved the Lord, and he understood his own need of grace. So David does stand out above the rest, but when you come to Jesus, the descendant of David, something different is here. Someone beyond any comparison. Just like Moses had to remove his sandals before entering that holy ground in Horeb, John the Baptist considered his own hands unworthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. This can only only mean, mean one thing. The one who walked among men, whom John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River, is just as holy as the God who spoke to Moses in the mountain. So next Sunday, we will consider this Jesus and answer, why is Jesus the one who surpasses all human worthiness? And why is Jesus the very center of all our encouragement in this life? So I want to invite you to be here next week as we sit yet again again at the feet of Paul to continue to receive his word of encouragement. It will become very, very personal. I hope you won't miss it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement, which is truly rooted in the goodness of God, in your goodness. And so we thank you for the fact that this morning, through both the worship, through singing, and the word, our eyes have been lifted away from ourselves and to the one who never changes, to the one who is always good. And we thank you because, as Paul says, this history has been written for our instruction and for our encouragement so that we might have hope. And so we consider your goodness this morning, and this is what we take home. Not the current condition of the world, not our present circumstances, but we are encouraged because you are good. You do good, and this will always be true. And so we thank you for this conviction that we have that cannot be shaken. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.